Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's good to see each one here this morning. What a blessing to be in the house of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship our Heavenly Father. In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. I'm going to read just a few select verses down through this portion. We could read the entire portion down into chapter 6, but I'll read just a few verses. Beginning in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It is no accident that when Paul gives the admonition inspired by the Holy Spirit for us to be filled with the Spirit, that he immediately begins to focus on our interpersonal relationships, that he talks about those that we engage with speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns within the church. But then he immediately focuses on the family. As he focuses on the family, it is a reminder that our measure of being filled with the Spirit or the evidence of us being filled with the Spirit will immediately be tested by those that we come in contact with. The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is not what we say, but it's how it's expressed in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And what better place to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives than in those that are closest to us, the people that we encounter first, particularly within our family. There may be those that think someone is filled with the Spirit, and the person themselves may think they're filled with the Spirit, but their family will know whether they're filled with the Spirit or not. Can I get an amen from all the families? That's pretty much all of us. So, I remember when I was a child that... um, how shall I say this, people of a certain age would do this weird thing whenever they looked at something. They would look at something directly in front of them, and I'd see them throw their head back like this. Never could quite understand that. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. As I got a little older, I realized they were wearing what was called bifocals. And something that was not in focus, they had to try to get it where it was focused. And I always wondered, why are they got their nose stuck up in the air? Why does... Now I'm beginning to understand a little bit better why that took place. I remember when my dad first uh, got bifocals, um, he was preaching, and when he preaches, he moves around a bit. He'll be up and down the stairs and around and all over, and he had on his bifocals, and um, when he went down the stairs, he looked through one lens, but when he got ready to come back up the stairs, he was looking at them from a different angle and a different lens, and Uh, It was like somebody had moved the stairs in a different place, and he took a step to go back up, and he fell right on his face. And, of course, being the compassionate, caring Christian crowd that we were, yeah, we laughed, exactly. 
And y'all know that because that's exactly what y'all would do if anything ever like that happens to me. I know. I know exactly what, where this is going. But it had to be brought into focus. In our world today, we have accepted, we have allowed ourselves to adapt to a very fuzzy view of what the family is supposed to be. We've accepted what the world has said is this is the norm. This is just the way things are. Let me just remind us that just because something is the way things are doesn't mean that's the way things are supposed to be. Just because there can be conflict in marriage doesn't mean that there is, that should be accepted and that should be the norm. Just because there can be disrespect from children to parents doesn't mean that that should be the norm. We live in a fallen world that has fallen tendencies, and so just because something is doesn't mean it should be. And so when we have this understanding of what the home is, unfortunately, we've begun to accept what the world says is normal about the family. We've done this in a number of ways. One of the ways is is that we have developed a weakened view of marriage. Now, our world today has gone to some, there and is going to some extremes. Heard just this week of a, of a town who has allowed um, marriage to be expanded even beyond what it was expanded by the Supreme Court some years ago. Our world says it's perfectly fine to marry as many people as you want and whoever you want and whatever kind of person you want and don't even get married if you don't want to. It's, it's called cohabitation and it's on the rise and it's just like, well, don't even bother to get married. We call it cohabitation in our day. The Bible has another word for it. The Bible calls it fornication. Now, if that word offends you, I'm sorry that you're offended, but that's a Bible word and a Bible description for what takes place. It used to be called living in sin because it was considered that it was sinful. That hasn't changed. Though the world has, a, has accepted that thinking about marriage and about the family. Even within those who would say, well, marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. We have weakened the understanding and we have adapted what really is a, is a social contract understanding of marriage. That marriage is up to the whim of the individual. We don't define what marriage is. God, marriage is rooted in the covenant nature of God. And we don't choose it. We enter into it. When God designed marriage and he put the first marriage together in the Garden of Eden, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. We still repeat that at our weddings very often. What who is put together? What God has joined together. And so we've adapted this weakened understanding. We've weakened the vows. We've minimized the importance of, of the wedding ceremony as a sacred event. And it's, it's showing in our understanding of marriage. We've minimized the, the um, parental influence on children. We've turned the influence of the primary influences of children are no longer their parents. We've turned that over to other voices. We're allowing the voices that speak into their minds. Students and children are more influenced by their friends and by social media and by media than they are their parents and even their teachers. They hear much more from them, and that is the influence. That's the primary influence in, our, in their lives. Some years ago, even some Christian students were, were polled about their change in view about certain biblical mandates. And they said that their change came not through reason, not through somebody explaining to them or trying to persuade them differently. Their change came because one of their favorite TV characters had 
lived that lifestyle or taken that stance. Just this week, a very prominent actress in Hollywood made the statement on public on social media, kids, if your parents don't accept your lifestyle choices, and she named certain ones, just dump them, I'll be your mom. Now, obviously, she's not going to provide and take care of all the many children that she just verbally adopted. But that's the mentality. That's the understanding. Don't listen to your parental influence. Listen to what all these others have to say. Because of that, it's given us a terrible understanding. And then our society has tried to radically redefine what marriage is, what the family is. Marriage is designed by God. Any alteration of the original design of the home is man saying, I know better than God. And it's not just merely ridiculous. It is idolatrous because it puts me on the throne and says, God doesn't get to say what is right and what is wrong. I'm the final authority. And our families don't need to be redefined. They need to be realigned with what God has said about it. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm glad that God is clear in his word and he gives exactly what we need for every area and every aspect of life. There is not one aspect of your life or my life where the word of God does not have a precept or a principle that will guide us in it. And so when it comes to the family, what we want to do is refocus our vision, refocus our understanding to a godly and a biblical understanding. In this passage, there's a number of things over the weeks to come that we will look at. We'll look at God's plan for the family as God gives detailed, practical understanding of the husband and wife relationship and parents and children relationship. We'll look at God's presence in the family. This comes from us after the statement, be filled with the Spirit. And let me say to all of us, I don't preach this as an expert. I don't preach this as somebody who's done this perfectly. But I will tell you this, that our success in our families will only come to the measure that our families are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because being filled with the Spirit is what will shape me as a father, me as a husband, me as a son. The Holy Spirit is the one that will empower us and enable us to be the family members that God wants us to be. I have to love God with all of my heart. Now, I love my wife, but I'll not love my wife like I should if I don't first love God like I should. And I won't love my sons, and I won't be the father I should be if I'm not first in a right relationship with God. So, what does the Bible have to say about the purpose of the family? Why did God design the family? God doesn't design anything without a purpose. Sometimes on social media, you'll see people, and they'll put up a picture of some antique or something and they'll say how many of you remember what this is for and most of the time I'm going to be honest I'm so young I don't have a clue what any of them's talking about (laughs) probably the same for some of y'all I don't know you ever see someone those I had a man brought something to me one time and he said I have searched the internet and to this day I don't know if he ever found out what that tool was designed for but I'll guarantee you it was designed for something And whatever God designs, God designs for a purpose. The ultimate purpose is to bring glory to himself. God designed you to bring glory to himself. He designed the individual. We are a triunity, and we are body, soul, and spirit, and we are designed 
to bring glory to God. God designed the church to bring glory to God. We are a gathering of beings. We are a gathering into one body, into one family. And God designed the church to bring glory to him. And God designed the family to bring glory to himself. Biblically, what can we look at to see? This is the purpose of the family. Let's, get our, let's not accept the blurry vision of the world. What does the scriptures have to say? I believe that there's at least three truths that we can draw from Scripture of why God designed the family. The first is God, God's purpose for the family is to meet the relationship needs of each individual. You and I as individuals are created, and we're wired. We're designed for a relationship. We're designed. What did God say in Genesis chapter 1 after he created man? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him, a help suited for him. It's not good for man to be alone. And ever since then, every woman that's been created can say, it's not good for that man to be alone. Can I get an amen from the wives on that? Now, that's a much louder amen than the 8 o'clock service, Pastor. That was, they, they either weren't awake or there's a bunch, bunch of better men in the early service. I'm not sure. It is not good. Why? Because we were not designed for solitude. We need solitude from time to time, and we can survive in solitude, but we weren't, we weren't created for it. Bad things start to happen when we, are, when we are alone by ourselves for a long time. I mean, we all know what happened to Tom Hanks. He was talking to a volleyball for crying out loud. We weren't designed for that, and so God designed the family for us to experience the emotional, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual needs to be met by those around us. Now, let me just pause a minute and say that whenever I preach on the family and get to the passages on the family, there are those who will immediately almost start to disconnect because they feel like, well, this doesn't apply to me. Some are single, and they think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not involved in a marriage. But let me just say, others will say, well, you know, I've, we're, we're past the stage of having children, and we've been married for so long, we just don't have any more, we don't have any more problems. We never fight. We never, we never have any conflict. And so this, this doesn't apply to me. We'll see in just a moment. The church has a responsibility to be a surrogate for those who do not have these family relationships. There's examples of this in Scripture. Think of Paul. Timothy had a mother and a grandmother, but he had an absentee, spiritually absentee father. Paul became a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy became a spiritual son to Paul who had no sons of his own. Paul will write to Timothy and he'll say, the church is to minister to those who are widows indeed. A widow indeed is not just someone not just a lady whose husband has died, but one whose husband has died and she has no family to take care of her. And so he says the church is to step in and be that surrogate family to replace and, and fill those needs for that person. The early church was known as one who would take care of their own. They took care of the widows. They took care of the orphans, those who did not have those family members to take care of them. So there is a role for every church member to play in meeting the needs of those that are within our congregation, those who will step in and be surrogate spiritual parents, those who will encourage, those who will speak truth. And we, you need to know, we need to know the truth of this passage. 
so that when we see another couple or another family that's struggling, we need to be able to speak biblical truth to them. I've heard some of the counsel that people sometimes give to their friends and family members, and I want to tell you there's some bad advice, some very anti-biblical advice that's given. And so we go to the truth of Scripture. So we need to understand this, and we need these relationships. There's, there's the emotional needs that are met. There's the spiritual needs that are met. There's the, there's the mental, the instruction that's given. Boy, the book of Proverbs is a father giving instruction to his son. And you get to the end, and it's a mother giving instruction. It's parents giving godly wisdom for life. All of these needs are to, designed to be met by, within the family. Even the spiritual needs, when we get down into chapter 5, we're going to see that there's a spiritual relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. That it's a husband's responsibility for the spiritual sanctification of his wife. The wife has a spiritual influence on the husband. In fact, the Bible will say, and Peter will say, that there are those husbands who will not be won by the word. It's an astounding statement. But he says they may be won by the conversation, the the model of life, the, the manner of life of the wife. That tells me that a wife, even whether the husband is believing or unbelieving, the wife has a dramatic influence on the husband. As the old saying is, the husband is the head of the family, but the wife's the neck, and the neck turns the head wherever she wants it to go. God designed the family to meet the relationship needs. When the, when the family is formed as God intended, and there's, I've, I've done reading and research on this and gone through studies that demonstrate even secular sociologists recognize that the family, when it is according to the design of Scripture, they don't say it's the design of Scripture, but when it's as God intended, Children and families benefit from it. Why? Because that's the way God designed us. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. Isn't it a shocking thing that God knew what he was doing when he designed the family? God knew what was best. If we would just learn to acknowledge that, we'd be a whole lot better off. Number two, there's a second principle from Scripture, and that is is that the family is designed to maintain genuine worship from generation to generation. The family is to be the repository of faith. Now, does that mean that a person can't get saved if they come out of an unbelieving home? Absolutely not. Does that mean that every child that's born and raised in a Christian family is going to grow up to follow Christ? Absolutely not. But it does mean that God intended that the primary means of the faith of the teaching of Scripture, of the love of God, of the manner of life is to be conveyed and taught by the family. Now, we have wonderful children's ministry and wonderful student ministry, but it is not the primary responsibility of our, of our children's ministry and pastor and student ministry and pastor to teach the children and the students the Word of God. It is that of the family That's the primary. Now, we come alongside and we complement what is being done in the home. And when it's not being done in the home, we have to step into that gap. But do not abrogate the responsibility that you have for your children to someone else. If I want my 
children to be taught some things, I turn them over to a coach or a teacher. But I cannot do that. I cannot do that with my faith. It has to be something that is within me. Several years ago, when Will was um, in high school, he played soccer. When I was growing up, we had a soccer ball, and about all we knew to do was just kick it at each other. I didn't know it, and I didn't have it in me. I could not teach him what he needed to know because it was not part, I, I didn't have knowledge about it. So he joined a soccer team. He learned from a coach who knew about it. But when it comes to my faith, I can't turn my children over to spiritual coaches. Now, they may benefit, and they will benefit, but my responsibility, it has to be in me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, these words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children. You'll talk about them when you walk by the way, and when you sit down, and when you rise up. So there's Living it, there's teaching it, there's discussing it that goes on and takes place. And that is, the, that is the passing of the faith. One generation, the psalmist says, one generation shall declare thy works to another. Passing the faith, and it starts with it being in my heart. You cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot lead where you will not go. You cannot pass to your children what you do not have. And so the family is designed to be that passing of the faith. One generation shall praise thy name to another. There's a third biblical truth, and I believe this is the most important. This is key. The family meets our relationship needs. God designed it for a very practical purpose. God designed it for the, the continuing of the faith from one generation to the next. The family is not just to, just to, um, keep property and do all those practical things. It is to be a keeping of the faith. And it ought to be a primary role and goal in our lives to teach our children not just about God, but help them to know God. Our pastor's sermon last week, what a powerful sermon on the three chairs. Chair number one, the person that knows God. Chair number two, the person that knows about God. Chair number three, the person that doesn't know God at all. And very often, those three chairs mirror three generations. A parent who, or an individual who knows God. And they bring their children to church, and they teach them, and they know about God. The second generation knows about God, but they don't know God. And then the third generation comes along, and they don't even know God. That's why it's been said that the faith is always one generation away from extinction because each of us must make sure that for ourselves it is not enough for us to just teach our children about God and pass information to the next generation. It is a passing of the faith to the next generation. I was born into the family of a preacher, a pastor, an evangelist, and I heard the gospel from the time I could understand anything. But that won't get me into heaven. God doesn't have grandchildren. And there came a time in my life when I had to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior for myself. And there came a time in my life when I had to make sure and understand that what I believed was not merely just what I had been taught, but it was what I believed for myself. And I took possession of it. It was in my heart. But that's not enough for my sons. And it's not enough for your children and your grandchildren. The family is designed to be that repository of faith that passes the faith on to the next generation. 
and not merely information, but a relationship. The third purpose is that God designed the family to manifest and model his covenant love. The family is designed to bring glory to God. It is designed to show what covenant love looks like. This transcends human love, and it reflects a God kind of love. God reveals himself throughout Scripture in familial relationships, father and children, husband and wife. Here's a great mystery Paul will say further down. I speak concerning Christ and the church. God uses visuals. God understands that we are physical. We're human. And we don't always grasp spiritual things. We struggle with it, so he gives us visuals. Uh, An example of that would be baptism. Baptism is a visible manifestation of a spiritual experience. When I trusted Christ, I was baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Did not see that happen. You have never seen a person be born again. You've seen a person maybe pray and trust Christ, but you didn't see what took place spiritually. And so God designed for us to testify of that through baptism, where we are baptized into water just as we are baptized into Christ. The family is a similar physical manifestation of truths about God. It points us to God, and it brings glory to God, and the family is most glorifying of God when it best reflects that covenant nature of God, that covenant love of God. Let me sow three quick seeds this morning that I want you to keep in your mind as in the weeks to come we will work through this passage and move through it pretty quickly. But I want you to keep these three thoughts in your mind concerning the covenant love of God And then think about how it relates to our family relationships. Number one, the covenant love of God is what I will use the word as preemptive. In other words, it doesn't respond, it initiates. God, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that what? He first loved us. You see, there's a tendency in the family to say, I will act right as long as they act right. The husband says, well, I love my wife. I'd love my wife if she showed me a little more respect. It's not the way it works. The wife might say, well, I'd be more respectful of my husband if he was a little more loving to me. No, God calls us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. God says to the wife, wives, see that you reverence, you respect your husband. Not if your husband loves you. Children don't get to say, well, I'll obey my parents as long as they're in a good mood. That's not the way that works. You know, if dad would say that a little nicer, I might actually obey him. We saw verse 1, and I'll repeat that for all the children in the room and all the parents can say amen. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Not children, obey your parents and the Lord because you agree with it. Parents don't get the opportunity to say, well, I I would discipline my children if they were a little more obedient. No, that's the whole point of discipline. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier not to discipline your children. But we don't get that option. The love of God is expressed in an initiating way. And we are to love husbands whether we're respected or not. Wives, 
respect and obedience. I'm to obey God's commands without question or reservation. Number two, God's covenant love is others-focused. This is not about me. This is not about what's in it for me. It's focused on others. It's focused on their needs. The family manifests in a very special, unique way, putting others first. Putting a, Where better and more often do we get the chance to show others-focused love than in the family? And then a third truth is, is that God's covenant love is unconditional. Aren't you glad that God loves you unconditionally? How many of you have ever done anything since you've been saved? How many of you have ever done anything that God wouldn't like? Put both of them up if you need to. Does God still love us? Yes, he does. And in the family, what an opportunity we have to express unconditional love. Unconditional love between a husband and a wife. Unconditional love between parents and children. You see, when the family is as God designed it, now listen to me carefully, I fully understand that because we live in a fallen world, we seldom live up, if ever, live up to the ideal that God established. But let me tell you that God's plan is for our good. And it's for our good because it brings him glory. I have said this before. You will hear me say it again. You'll hear me say it quite frequently because I believe that it is a biblical principle and I want you to get it in your hearts and minds. When we do what is right, when we follow God's way, it will, first of all, bring glory to God. It will extend grace to others and it will be good for us. Now, the problem is is that we often get that out of order and we do things based on what is good for me. When I do what is good for me, let me tell you, when we put that first, we're going to get none of the above. What's good for me is selfish and it doesn't bring glory to God and it's not concerned about others. And in the long run, it won't be good for me. But when I seek first what glorifies God, and what glorifies God in the family? Manifesting, modeling his covenant love. When I do that, you know what's going to happen? It's going to bring glory to God. Because there's one of my children that's doing what I want him to do. You know what else it's going to do? It's going to show grace to others. If I'm seeking to love like my heavenly father, do you think it's going to show grace to my family? Is it going to demonstrate grace to a world that thinks families are supposed to just tolerate each other and fight and bicker all the time and look out for them, look out for each other? And No. Is it going to see grace? And then you know what it's going to do? It's going to be good for me. I have to begin with bringing God glory. Do our families... What, what's our, where are our relationships? Where are our marriages? I have been burdened over the past number of days as I began to study this passage and think through these things, pray over these things. At the attack that is going on in this day on our families. And the greatest attack is not necessarily what's happening from our society 
the greatest attack is what's happening from within. And very often, the conflict in the families come from the families that birth those families. What we experience as adults, we are dramatically shaped by from our childhood and what we come from. And then we come into our new family and we have these challenges and Satan is fighting. But I, I pray for, I, I am asking God to strengthen the families of Central Baptist Church. Because when our families are strong, our church is strong. And when our families and our churches are strong, our nation is stronger. Our world is impacted because it sees the glory of God. This world desperately needs to see this kind of love. And they need to see it through our families. Families that glorify God by fulfilling his purpose. Will you bow with me for prayer? In a moment, we'll have a song of invitation played. But let me ask you this before we stand in just a moment. Husbands, wives, is your relationship one that glorifies God by manifesting his love? Or is it one that is focused on you and what you want and what you need? Parents, in raising our children, are we focused on what's convenient, what's easy for us, merely just glad that they are well-behaved, that they are conforming rather than being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, that they don't just know about God, they know Him. Students, children, are you obedient to your parents because to be obedient to them is to show honor and glory to God? All of our relationships within the family unit. Where are we this morning? Let God turn a searchlight on your heart Maybe this morning you need to come to the altar and just say, by God's grace, I want my family to not just be a good family. I want to be a godly family, and I want to focus on God's purpose for us. Father, I pray that in this invitation you'll speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.